The title of the message this morning is Enter Through the Narrow Gate. We will uh, be finishing up the Sermon on the Mount this morning as uh, Pastor Scott and I have been preaching, I guess, maybe the last seven or eight messages through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have now uh, come to the end of this greatest sermon uh, preached by the greatest preacher. And uh, we have, in, in many ways, uh, barely scratched the surface of this Sermon on the Mount in all of its um, profundity. Um, and I'm sure uh, Pastor Scott would agree with me on that. There have been many tomes written on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and so we hit the highlights. The body of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount actually concludes in verse 12, which is where Pastor Scott's last sermon concluded. In verse 12, Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is what is commonly known as the golden rule. And we will finish up today with Jesus' concluding remarks of the sermon. Though, as we will see, I trust that these concluding remarks that we will see today, they will necessitate a review of the entire message. So, with that, we have a lot to cover today. Let's dive in together. So, in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, I'll read verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus, our Lord, speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So the first thing we have to see here in verse 13 is the first word of verse 13, which is enter. This is a command. It is an exhortation. And like most good sermons, right, this is where the sermon must end. It must have a command. It must have an exhortation. So you think about Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. You think about Joshua at the end of Joshua. You think about Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. And you think about even the sermon to the Hebrews, which we will be beginning on Wednesday evenings in a few weeks. Jesus says, we must act. We must choose. We must enter. Enter what? We must enter the narrow gate. And this is contrasted, of course, with the wide gate. You see that there in verse 13. In fact, some manuscripts don't even have the word gate. Sometimes it just says, for the way is wide and easy. And, and I think that's helpful for us to know that, actually, because this is not a choice between the narrow gate and the wide gate. Everyone... Every one of us, because we are sons and daughters of Adam, by default, we are on the wide way leading to destruction. That is our default state already. And so the exhortation, the command from Jesus Christ, is because knowing you are on the wide way to destruction, because you are a son of Adam, a sinful, rebellious human being against God, you must do something. You must get off of the wide way that leads to destruction. And you must enter the narrow gate. Jesus says, many, many are on the wide way. 
So let's talk a little bit about the narrow gate in verse 14. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because there's going to be no controversy about these remarks, but let me just touch on them very briefly. So, number one, what does narrow mean? Well, it's an exclusivity claim, right? We all affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way to life eternal. His perfect righteousness, his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of God. That is the only way that anyone can be saved, can be put into right relationship with God, can be redeemed, can be reconciled. There's lots of words we could use. It's the only way. It's a claim of exclusivity. That's one aspect of what the narrow gate means. There are many roads that lead to Rome. There is only one gate and way that leads to eternal life. And that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is not controversial here in our midst, I know. So I'll move on. Another aspect of the narrow gate is that it is a claim of individuality. It's a narrow gate because you must go through alone. You must go through alone. Your faithful great-grandfather who read his Bible and prayed every day did not get two tickets and bequeath you one of them. Everyone must go through the gate and narrow means it's only wide enough for one person at a time. Everyone must come alone. Everyone must heed the call of Jesus Christ to enter through the narrow gate. Lastly, this is a spiritual call. It's a spiritual call. We must go through the gate empty-handed. We cannot bring anything with us. Certainly none of our works righteousness, which are filthy rags in the sight of God. We must come through alone and we must come through empty handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Yes, we come through empty-handed and naked spiritually. And we get a clothing, a covering that is not our own. This is the gospel. So not only is the gate narrow, but look with me at verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So there's there's a few things I want to say here about the hard way. And and we could do a, a month full of Sundays on the hard way. I think we get a pretty steady diet of this here, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But I want us to understand something uh, that's maybe apologetic in nature, right? That this hard way is spiritually difficult, right? Not always physically difficult. Here's what I mean. There are many people in the world today who suffer Physically in this life. They suffer from poverty. They suffer from oppression. They suffer from disease. We all know what's going on in Ukraine right now. They suffer in the midst of war. And many of those people who suffer in a difficult way, in a physical way, they suffer in this life and they go to hell when they die. That's a fact. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about here. And I can prove it to you because many of Jesus' listeners were suffering from the same thing. They were suffering from poverty. They were suffering from oppression of Rome. We know Jesus had a healing ministry where he cleansed people, healed people of many of their diseases. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the spiritual life. He's talking about the inner man. Or the inner woman. We must squeeze, as it were, through the narrow gate. And finally, when we're through the narrow gate, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we turn around and boom, bump our head. And what's there? What's there? It's a cross. It's a cross. It's not a physical cross. Jesus bore the physical cross. But he commands each and every one of us to carry our own spiritual crosses. Matthew 10 38, if anyone does not come after me and take up his cross daily, he is not worthy to be my disciple. This taking up of the cross is the hard way that Jesus is talking about. And I want you to know that as terrible as oppression and disease and poverty and war are, I just want to spend a few moments talking about our spiritual enemies. And they are much greater than any physical enemy that we see on the television. Number one, the world. James chapter 4, verse 4, James says, Do you know, not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, is hatred toward God? Well, guess what? The opposite of that is true if you flip them around. Friendship with God, you come through the narrow gate, you're carrying your cross, you're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden the world is now your enemy. And we already saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. What does Jesus talk about there? Go back and look if you like. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This has always been true. And by the way, in case you're not paying attention here in Western culture... It very much may be that my children, and Lord willing, my grandchildren, will be suffering persecution that we cannot even conceive of in this culture. It's coming. So number one was the world. Number two is the devil. James chapter 4, verse 7, James exhorts his readers to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. He talks about the schemes of the devil. See, before we went through the narrow gate, The devil had no issue with us. We go through the narrow gate. We become friends of God. The devil becomes our enemy. Think about this. John chapter 13, verse 27. Do you know what happens in John 13, 27? Satan enters into Judas Iscariot. The ultimate act of defiance and betrayal. The devil is God's great enemy, and he is also ours. So we have the world, we have the devil, and thirdly, we have the flesh. It's the enemy within. It's the enemy we carry around with us in this life. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says that these temptations, they come from inside of us, and they lead us to sin, and those sins lead to death. This is the hard way. 
Every day, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that every day, by the Spirit, we must be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It is a daily battle, and it is against the world, it is against the devil, it is against our flesh that remains. This is the hard way that Jesus is talking about. This is the cross that we bear once we go through the narrow gate This is the way that leads to life eternal. And I just want to say again that Jesus says that there are few who find it. Few who find it. Back in the mid-2000s, I had a friend up at the uh, Bettis lab. And he's a much-trusted friend and brother uh, this day. And I remember when he got saved and he told me, that he um, was getting baptized. And I was much younger then and much stupider then. But I knew enough to send him a short email back with a quotation of Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul at Lystra, stoned, left for dead. He's encouraging the saints. And he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God. You heard it here this morning from Pastor Scott. Heard it last week from Pastor Mike. We'll touch on that again. This is the spiritual refinement that Scott and Mike were talking about every day, burning off the dross. Let's pick up in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so... What do you see here again in verse 15? These are Jesus' concluding remarks. He's done teaching. He's now exhorting. First word, verse 15. Beware. Beware. And, And how I wish so many more Christians would heed this warning to beware the false prophets. This this exhortation is hardly heeded in our day, I think. I really do. And many things could be said now and many things have been said from this pulpit over the last eight and a half years. So I'm not going to regurgitate all of that. But I want you to see, the first thing you have to see is the context in which Jesus is speaking. What's his context? He's a first century Jew and he's in conflict. As we have said throughout this study in Matthew, he's in conflict with the Jewish religious leadership of his day. This Jewish religious leadership of Jesus' day in the first century they were actually leading people away from Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That's the first order, beware. Go with me, if you will, in your Bible. Look at Matthew 23. I just want you to see Jesus' Jesus' words. Matthew 23. This is the primary context of Jesus speaking. Matthew 23, then Jesus said to the crowds... In Matthew 5, he's speaking to the crowds. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Skip down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the primary context of Jesus speaking about false prophets and false teachers. But we can extend this warning to the New Testament age. The rest of the New Testament. There are many warnings in the New Testament to beware. Beware false teachers. Beware false prophets. So I want to talk about that. Because here in the text, verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 7, there's talking about their fruits. Their fruits. And Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. They're not hidden. They shouldn't be hidden. So let's expose them. What are their fruits? What fruits should we be looking for? First and foremost, number one, number one, beware false doctrine. Beware false doctrine. This is the most important warning, and it's actually, frankly, the easiest one. Okay, so you don't have to go there. You can just listen. Let me read you um, a couple of things. I'm going to read from Paul. I'm going to read from Peter. And I'm going to read from John, right? Three of the main New Testament writers, right? If you count Luke for Paul and you count uh, Mark for Peter, we're talking like 80 to 90% of the New Testament here. Here we go. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. This is what Paul says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by... Every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about the false prophets. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about doctrine. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. False doctrine, okay? Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. 
And by the way, I'm, take, I'm moving up past 90% of the New Testament because I'm taking Jude 2. The last epistle before Revelation. You know how it starts, right? Jude. And I, I just so badly wanted to write to you about our common faith. I wanted to encourage you and equip you, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Why? Because I have to write to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's doctrine. Many of you send the elders sermons and podcasts. Pastor Steve, could you listen to this? Pastor Mike, can you listen to this podcast? We love that. We love it. Keep doing it. Okay? Please. I had an experience, though, and it wasn't with anyone in this church about 12 years ago. Somebody said, can you listen to this particular person? Sure. Ten minutes. Boop. Hey, yeah, don't ever listen to that person ever again. And it actually didn't go over well with that person. And it turns out about two or three years ago, that preacher on the radio fell out of the ministry, kicked out of leadership in his church. It happens. It happens. False doctrine is real. And we have to be trained to know it. On Wednesday night, we're starting a study on critical race theory and wokeness. How it has infiltrated the church. You should come. You have to know what's out there. And you have to know how to answer it biblically. You are all welcome. So test number one. If the doctrine is bad, please move on. Move on. We have councils. We have creeds. We have confessions. We have an AGC, Abiding Grace Church, lending library. You're not sure whether or not somebody's worth reading, listening to? Go to the library. We don't let anything on there that's dangerous. Now, that's not to say we agree with everything that's on there. That's impossible. But you want some safe time, safe reading, safe devotion, borrow a book. Borrow a book. Number two. So number one, false doctrine. And you know what? If, if we all adhered to that test number one, if we all passed test number one, we could take care of like 90% of the issues, frankly. Okay? Well, let's keep going. Number two, the false prophets, they lead people away from the hard way. See, Jesus says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard. False prophets lead people away from the hard way. So I'll steal Swindoll here, okay? I believe in miracles. I don't believe in miracle workers. And a so-called miracle worker would never, listen, would never have preached last week's sermon from Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Persevere in tribulation. They don't preach perseverance in tribulation. They preach escape from tribulation. They don't understand or they refuse to believe that miracles, please listen to this, miracles are overrated. Look at Jesus' ministry. Not his teaching ministry. I know that's where we're at in the text. But look at Jesus' ministry. He's 
healing people, like making the blind to see, making the lame to walk, all of these things. Like he's doing these incredible things. And in Acts chapter 1, how many people are following Jesus? 120. After three years of a miracle ministry. Same was Moses. Moses, not real popular. Elijah, not real popular in Israel. Miracles are overrated, brothers and sisters. And I want you to know, and I say this to you as a word of encouragement. God gets more glory from a life faithfully lived by a man or a woman persevering in tribulation. And he does from the miracle. Be encouraged by that. And if you don't believe me, you can ask somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata. Who, when asked if she could take one thing to heaven, do you know what she said? She said she would take her wheelchair. Because that was the very thing. That was the very thing that led her to Jesus Christ. And that was the one thing she wanted to take. That's a life faithfully lived, persevering in tribulation. The glory that God gets from that is inestimable. And we should value that. Test number three. Let's look at the next text, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Test number one was false doctrine. Test number two, false prophets lead people away from the hard way. God bless you. Test number three, the false prophets are often the most loud and the most bold. Are they not? I mean, have you seen these charlatans on TV screaming into the camera? They're screaming all the time. They're always telling you. What are they telling you? They're always telling you. By the way, you shouldn't watch these things. This is this hypothetical you, okay? But they're always telling you about the many mighty works that they have done. They're always telling you about the size of their ministry. But with your $100, they could do so much more. And they're not here this morning, but I have their permission to briefly tell you this story from Roger and Kathy Cheesebro. For those of you who don't know, Roger and Kathy Cheesebro did some ministry in Kenya. And they were told a story by the Kenyans to whom they were ministering about how Bishop T.D. Jakes would come to Nairobi and he would rent out the soccer stadium. And these poor, literally, okay, poor Kenyans would go and they would fill the soccer stadium. And he would preach false doctrine. He's a modalist. You want to know what that is? Come on, talk to us afterward, okay? Preach false doctrine. Preach, preach health, wealth, and prosperity. And then he would take an offering. Now this is a guy who flew there on his own jet. Take an offering. And if he was displeased with the first offering, he would order the doors of the stadium be locked. 
and he would take offerings until he was satisfied. And then he would fly away. And these are the people that the cheese bros were ministering to. They had almost nothing. And when T.G. Jakes left, they had nothing. Behind all their perfect hair and their shiny teeth and their $1,500 suits, these men and women are ravenous wolves. But look again in verse 21. It's not just the false prophets being discussed here, is it? It applies to them, but it's not just them. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? I don't know about you, but this is some of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. They they really are. I've been living with these verses for a few weeks now. It's very difficult. But Jesus is not talking here about Buddhists and atheists, is he? No, these professors are saying, Lord, Lord, these are professing Christians, aren't they? I mean, it's right there on the text. And of course, the repetition there, as we know, that repetition there means that this profession of faith, this declaration of Jesus as Lord, is emphatic. It's an emphatic profession of Jesus is Lord. What's going on here? This goes back to Jesus' discussion on hypocrisy in Matthew Chapter 6, I think. So you have your finger in your Bible, right? Just turn back a page to Matthew 6. Look at verse 2. Jesus is speaking. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Right? Verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you... They have received their reward. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This is what Paul calls in 2 Timothy 3.5, a form of religion, a form of godliness, but it has no power. Listen. These are pew sitters with a public profession, but no personal piety. That's what we're talking about. Again, there are many of these. I'm not saying that, except that Jesus is saying it and I'm repeating it. Do you see that? It's in the text. And in many cases, the pastors know who these people are. And over the years, many professing Christians come and go. And there are some estimates that say, in America, church attendance is down something like 40% post-COVID. Now, 
I'm not going to explain that to you except to give you some homework. You might want to go look up 1 John 2.19 to figure out why that is. There will be many who will say to Jesus Christ on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then in verse 23, on that day. See, by then it's too late. Do you see that? That's why these verses are so difficult because we have to live with them now. We have to be examining ourselves now. We have to be looking at our lives now. Because on that day, it's too late. On that day, Jesus, verse 23, He will declare to these people, these pew sitters with a public profession, but no personal piety, He will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I will come back to lawlessness in a moment. Verse 24. Now, I want you to follow along very closely. Please have your Bibles open if you have them in front of you. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. This is very important, okay? Here we are again. Everyone, everyone, this is you and me. Everyone who hears these words of mine, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about His teaching. Everyone who hears these words of mine and believes in the finished substitutionary work of the Jewish Messiah on the cross will be like a... Is that what yours says? Maybe I'm reading a bad translation. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Now, I want to say up front, I believe with all of my heart in sola fide. Because I know you I don't really have to explain that to you, but for internet land, okay, on Sermon Audio, Sola Fide, I believe that we are justified before God by faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, and His perfect righteousness is imputed to me by faith alone, and that is how I stand before God now and on the last day. So if anyone says, if anyone hears the rest of this sermon and says that Vinay denies sola fide, I want you to understand, that is slander. But here in verse 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And I get into a lot of trouble with my reformed friends because I like to talk about works. We like to talk about works here, Pastor Mike. We do. We read from Titus 2. You don't have to go there. I'll go there. From Titus chapter 2. This is Paul writing. The same Paul wrote Romans chapter 4 and established justification by faith alone. He says this in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. He loves to write about salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that's salvation, no doubt, and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you know what we do here at Abiding Grace Church? We talk about good works. 
And I'm not ashamed of it. So what exactly is it that Jesus is saying the things we ought to do? Alright, follow along. Okay, wet your finger. Matthew chapter 5. Now, before we go there, let me, let me make it very clear, apparently, what the things Jesus is not talking about. Can you go back with me to verse 23? <laughs> Or verse 22. Apparently Jesus is not talking about prophesying in your name or casting out demons in your name or doing many mighty works in His name. Apparently He's not talking about that because those people are in trouble. So what is He talking about? Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice when you are persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men. Verse 24. Be reconciled to your brother or sister quickly. Verse 29. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. Verse 37. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Verse 39. Turn the other cheek when somebody slaps you. Verse 40. Give your cloak and your tunic to the one who sues you. Verse 42. Give to beggars when they ask. Lend to borrowers. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. You have this public profession and you have personal piety. Verse 9. You pray for God's will to be done. Chapter 6, verse 14. Forgive those who sin against you. Verse 20, store up heavenly rewards. Verse 25, trust God, don't be anxious. Verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 1, don't have a judgmental spirit. Verse 5, take the log out of your own eye. Verse 12, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. These are do passages. Do them. And it sounds like a lot, right? Right? I mean, I'm exhausted just reading them. And it is, and it's not. Let me explain. Let me explain. Now, Tim Pfeiffer didn't even know that we were going here this morning in the sermon. But, but, two days ago, Tim Pfeiffer sent me a text message and said, Pastor Steve, I got a question about Deuteronomy. Can you give me a call? I'm like, So we exchanged texts, and we had a phone call on Friday. Because Tim is doing his devotional reading and he's trying to understand all these laws. Tell me about the tithes. That honor. Are we supposed to eat the tithes? And it can be overwhelming and I get that. That's why we were going verse by verse, line by line. I, right? How did I respond? Look again with me at Matthew 7 verse 12. This is where we started the sermon today. Matthew 7 verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Like, we'd be okay if he put the period right after do also to them, right? But then he says this incredible thing. This is the law and the prophets. Prior to his passion and crucifixion, this is where Jesus has to stop. It's called progressive Revelation. The golden rule. All of those list of things that I laid out for you, they are summed up in the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. But listen, listen, it gets better. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, right? On the night that he's betrayed by Judas, he's arrested after dinner. 
But before he's arrested, he says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's John 13, verse 34. He begins his discussion after Judas leaves with that. And then if you look, he ends the discussion on that same night before his high priestly prayer with the same thing. This is how I responded. See, that long list we read, they're just variations on love God and love one another. That's what the weekly one another's are. Do you understand? Like two times a year, right? There are 26 weekly one another's. And the first one, every time we go through the rotation, do you know what it is? Do you remember? John 13, 34. Love one another. And then the other 25 weekly one another's are just variations on the same theme. Comfort one another is just a way that we express our love to our brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question. How would our families, how would our friendships, how would our workplaces, how would our church, how would our lives change if before we said or did anything, we just asked ourselves, is this thing that I'm about to say or do an expression of love toward the person to whom I'm speaking or acting? And if the answer is no, then we ask ourselves the following question. How, how can I love this person? In this situation. First John 3.16. By this we know love. How? How? I mean we know John 3.16, right? It's at the football games, the whole deal, right? First John 3.16. It's also extremely important. You should commit it to memory just like you've committed to memory. John 3.16. We occasionally have it on a chalkboard in our kitchen. First John 3.16. By this we know love. What? Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If we started doing that, listen, if we started doing that, then the world would know that we're Christians. John 13, 35. If we started doing that, then listen, the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Where is that from? Romans 8, verse 4. And if we started doing that, maybe others who don't know Jesus would ask us about the hope that we have. 1 Peter 3, 15. Now, go back to Matthew 7. Verse 23, this love one another thing. In the New Testament, it's called the law of Christ by Paul twice, 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6. It's called the law of liberty by James. It's called the royal law by James. It is, listen, Matthew 7, verse 23, look at it. it this love one another thing, it is the opposite of lawlessness. It is the opposite of lawlessness. Lawlessness is an extremely good translation there. The Greek word is anomia. Nomia, nomos means law. A negates it. No law. 
See, God's not interested, not that interested, in great preachers or miracle workers. God is primarily interested in creating and sanctifying a people who love one another. And how do we know this? How do we know it? Can I prove it from somewhere else in the text? Of course I can. Pastor Scott read it before the sermon, didn't he? What was the other reading from this morning besides Titus 2? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Can you see love being contrasted with many mighty works? I don't know. Specifically, prophesying and other signs. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. By the way, that's not a compliment. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, did you see that? Prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Matthew 7 verse 23 Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, the false prophets and the false teachers, they don't love, they lie. And when the rain falls and the floods come, In this life and at the consummation of the ages, it is only those whose hearts have been flooded with the love of God by the Holy Spirit of God who will persevere in tribulation and stand before the throne of God. Now listen, they will stand, we will stand by grace, we will stand before the throne of God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone, Matthew 22, 11, and, 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 In the fine linen that is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation chapter 19 verse 8. The black letters in Matthew 7 at the end. Verse 28, 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Are you astonished at Jesus' teaching? Do these words ring in your mind and in your heart as true and authoritative? Do you realize that you have fallen quite short of so high a calling? I have. I promise. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. You and I, we've barely scratched the surface of love God and love one another in our daily lives. What is a sinner like me to do? Well, I'll tell you what I ought not do and what you ought not do. Don't resolve to try harder. Don't resolve to do better. It's too late for that. You're already condemned. 
Answer, way back to the beginning of the sermon. Verse 13. You must enter through the narrow gate, which is the Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no other way to eternal life in the presence of the one true God. Yes, the way to the celestial city is hard. Matthew 7, verse 14. But it is blessed. Matthew 5, 1 through 11, which is where Jesus began his sermon. And besides, no reward worth gaining comes easily, does it? Amen. This Jesus who said, love one another even as I have loved you, he loved his people Sinners that we are. He loved us to the very end. John chapter 13 verse 1. So enter through the narrow gate. And you will stand upon the rock. In this life and in the next. This is your only hope. But it is hope enough. Let's pray.